When we look at these diversity scorecards and what Paulette Brown, um, former president of the ABA, uh, former president of the NBA over at, uh, uh, over at Lock Lord said, we have firms that are scoring high on the diversity scorecards and they don't have one black partner. Impossible right. to say that we're measuring the right things if you're getting a good grade on diversity and you don't have one black partner. I'm Jack Newton, CEO of Clio, and this is the Daily Matters podcast. On Daily Matters, we talk with legal professionals, industry leaders, and subject matter experts about the future of law. We explore where the legal industry is headed, how legal practice is changing, and what you can be doing to position yourself for success. This episode of Daily Matters is brought to you by the 2020 Clio Cloud Conference, the world's best legal conference, which is going completely virtual for the first time ever. Get your pass now at cliocloudconference.com. Today, we welcome Brian Parker to the show. Brian is co-founder and CEO of Legal Innovators, an innovative alternative legal service provider, which is improving hiring, pricing, and diversity and inclusion in the law. Brian, it's a pleasure to have you here. I am uh, delighted to be on. Uh, it's, uh, it's always good when we get a chance to tell our story and uh, especially follow such an innovative company uh, like you all. Hopefully, we'll have some small portion of the same success, but thanks for having us on. Well, thanks for, uh, thanks for that. And uh, maybe to give our, our listeners a, a bit of background to start off, can you tell us a little bit about your career experience? Yeah, so it's been, uh, it's, it's been a little bit uh, varied. So I started as an M&A lawyer um, in, in New York, uh, went to uh, NYU for law school, uh, and then started with a New York-based firm, Sherman & Sterling, where I had a really good experience doing uh, lots of M&A, building lots of hours. Um, I think when I was coming out of college and going to law school, um, I always thought that I'd end up at the company side, but uh, the law teaches you, you know, really how to think and analyze and problem solve. And I thought that was good. Uh, but I was very quantitatively uh, oriented as well. So wanted to uh, deepen my financial skill set uh, with the goal of eventually being good in operations. So I spent uh, about nine years doing investment banking. So first with uh, Lehman Brothers and, and then with Merrill through the dot-com boom uh, and ran uh, software and internet infrastructure for SG Callen uh, before then leaving and going on the operations side. So I spent about 15 years doing operations, first in finance, uh, then I came up through uh, uh, or got promoted to chief operating officer. Uh, and my last company, where I started as a chief operating officer, was a, a KKR-backed uh, company uh, that was software as a, as a service, uh, was promoted to CEO. That company ended up getting sold. Uh, and then I was looking to see how I could bring all of those skill sets together. So it was a, a kind of old home week when I reconnected with uh, John, who's the co-founder, uh, because I brought my operational experience but it was coming back to law. So our product was something obviously I knew deeply. And one of the things that we talk about in our training and our mentorship, or in our training, excuse me, is mentorship. Uh, and so my story with this partnership starts, uh, well, over 22 years ago, uh, maybe it was 24 years ago, I was a summer associate at uh, Sherman and Sterling. Uh, and John Greenblatt, who is a co-founder and our chairman, um, was my mentor then. And so um, opened lots of doors, got uh, lots of exposure. And when we came back together, I said, wow, uh, you've got this uh, really nice operations experience that you've built up. Uh, why don't we have you run the company? But we really do it like partners. Um, and I find that really fun uh, because we uh, both care and have a respect for each other, don't take things too seriously. But I think we also live our model. And uh, I always joke with people, that it's hard to gain a 40 year understanding of the law unless you've sat in the chair for 40 years, right? And so John has, and he's seen every aspect of the firm from uh, co-founding the diversity committee at Sherman to sitting on the policy committee. Uh, and so I think we bring uh, a unique understanding of law, some of the innovation, and then you, you, you couple it with the operations that I, that I bring to the table. And I think we're able to bring that full package to the market and to our clients. And can you clarify what makes Legal Innovators an innovative alternative legal provider, legal service mm -hmm. provider or ALSP? Yeah, I, I, it's a mouthful, uh, that acronym, right? So I always like, I have to like say it out and then I, then I spell it. Um, so what makes us innovative? I think it's 
having a respect for all of the history for how law has been done. Um, and then also recognizing that as you want to bring change, uh, how do legal organizations change? And big law firms, frankly, uh, change a little bit slow. Corporations, who we also market to, uh, change, change faster. And for us, we wanted to, all the typical things you think about with business, right? We wanted to look at where was there a large and growing market? Um, where was there some, you know, some running room? And we look at uh, our market um, at about $3 billion and growing at uh, a CAGR of 35, 40%. The biggest uh, competitor in the space is about 300 million revenue. I mean, it's, this is all private stuff, but that's less than 10% of the market. So we thought that there was room to go out and do something innovative. And then both from a strategy and a consultancy and an operations perspective, I looked at the business of law, especially big law and even corporations, because um, one of my stops was uh, I was a general manager for a publicly traded company of a, of a billion dollar company. And so I understood change management, understood how you, how you incorporate things. Um, and then again, back to John and his experience, we looked at the problem or one of the opportunities, maybe we'll say it that way, was redoing the, the entry pipeline of how associates were coming into big law. You've got this antiquated summer model, uh, uh, summer associate model. You've got uh, all uh, firms competing for talent. And really what it's setting off is this, uh, is this uh, price battle, if you will. And so now, First year coming out at these big firms is making 190 to 225. That makes the carrying costs for these folks five to six hundred thousand dollars a year. And you see where the story is going, right? What do you have to bill per hour? Well, clients are pushing back on that. Um, you're getting to know people for eight to ten weeks during the summer, so you don't fully know the capabilities. You don't know if if they fit with your culture and they don't know the same about you. So when you fast forward to years three and four and years three through eight should be the time where associates make the most money for their firm. Uh, same is true a little bit for corporations that do bring in, uh, bring in talent, but because there was uh, not a lot of diligence done upfront, um, what we're seeing is 30 to 50% turnover by year three and four. So here's the math that let's say you're going to one of the biggest firms, but it works, you know, you could just the same math all the way down to small numbers, but one of the big firms will hire a hundred associates per year. And so the math of paying for summer associate recruiting first and second year um, that comes to about a million, million two, maybe a little under. So a million times a hundred, hundred million. If you turned over 50% of your associates, that means that you're in your, 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 your investment is sunk. That's a hundred million. You're going to try to make a return on that investment with 50% fewer people. So mm -hmm. we sat back and said, well, clearly that's inefficient. Um, can we bring more of a business mindset, meaning running law like a business and some firms are, are already there. And so the way we've innovated is to break apart every problem that I just said and have a better answer for it. So, modeling after the European apprenticeship program, we have people one to two years. They're matched up with a firm or corporate legal department. Over that time, both parties are getting to evaluate culture. Both parties are getting to evaluate competence. And at the end of that period, if there is that cultural match and uh, it's decided that the work was good, you come together and then our theory is that there'll be a lot more stickiness, meaning you're not going to see 50% turnover. Maybe you see 20 or 25. There's always going to be people leaving for different opportunities, taking the cost way down. So we're going to pay a salary that's commensurate with what other grad level programs come out, MBAs, that sort of thing. So um, we're able to take uh, the cost down by as much as 40%. Then we get to the matter of retaining. So you've invested in this person better. Well, now we want to train and mentor. Do you have the skills needed to do the work? Can we, um, rather than just giving up on you, uh, if you make a mistake, do we have a thorough training program that can help you develop? And knowing the competencies that you need after first year, second year, third year, fourth year, we can look at it as almost like a consulting exercise and say, 
if a person's not objectively meeting this standard, then they're behind and we have to catch them up. Mentorship, and this goes especially for some of our diverse candidates that may not have grown up in households that were discussing big law. So how do you open doors for them? How do you make sure that they're getting equal work so that they're getting the visibility because then they feel valued. Then they feel that there's a sense of belonging. And if there is, people are going to stay around. And if they perform, then they'll get promoted. So all of those things are things that we try to bring. And we, we hooked up with the uh, best of breed people at each step. Our training program was structured by the former chief talent officer of Paul Weiss. So we feel good about where we're going. We have, and the last one I'll make, we have both diverse and non-diverse associates. Uh, and so uh, our part of our, um, John, as I said, uh, co-founded the diversity committee at uh, Sherman in the early 90s. Uh, for all the listeners that can't see me, maybe you'll see a, a headshot or something. Uh, I am a diverse CEO and, and, and uh, started out, obviously, as an African-American uh, lawyer. We said that we wanted to make sure that the doors uh, we're open to in bigger numbers to more diverse people. Um, and so that's our absolute commitment. We had 30% uh, um, African-American uh, in our first class, 50% overall diversity. Next year, that number is going to go up to uh, 35% and 55% uh, respectively. So, um, it is, it, and I know we'll get into this, but if you pause and look at uh, the George Floyd murder, I think what it's done for our industry is corporate legal departments, um, vendors, law firms are all pausing to say, how do we get at this issue of race? How do we get at this issue of equality and opportunity in a systemic way? And I think that we're going to be um, able to insert ourselves and add, some, add a lot of value as we go. And that's something that's critically uh, important to us. When you look at some of the impacts you're able to see on the, the numbers, uh, Brian, I'm wondering if you can share uh, any metrics around retention. Some of the, some of the math you've done is, is undeniable in terms of sure. the, the kinds of efficiencies we could drive if, we, if we're able to move these metrics in the right direction. Do you have any you know, even early results that you can share with us on that front? Yeah, so it's a, it's a real good question. Um, and what I'll say is, uh, that we are, are just coming up on our first year anniversary as a company, right? Yeah. So things that we have are still anecdotal. We have to go through a couple of cohorts before we have that hard data. Um, Absolutely. But part of, part of what I bring to the partnership, Jack, um, and you put your hand, hands on it and hopefully it jumps off of my person, um, is data and it is metrics because we think one of the reasons that diversity uh, and inclusion initiatives maybe haven't driven um, as much, as many results as they could have, is that we're not, we're not putting metrics on it. We're saying, hey, we spent a bunch of money, we hosted some galas, we, we gave money to good causes. That sounds to me like more like philanthropy versus saying, here is a, I'll take JP Morgan, right, in our webinar, the, the, the managing director for the Advancing Black Pathways Initiative uh, spoke. And one of the things that he said was that starting from the top, Jamie Dimon said 50% of our work will be done by um, women and minorities. There's a stake in the ground, right? And that's not going to be overnight. Um, and, and I'd be lying if I said I knew the exact time period, but let's just say for a moment that that was a five-year goal. Now it, 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 it comes out of the bucket of nice to have and moves into the to the bucket of business imperative, just like anything else, right? So um, where I was the GM or like with Seku, who I'm talking about, CEO comes and they say, um, look, we've got to have uh, our profit has to go up by 20% or whatever. And so they'll look at your business and do you deliver it or not? And so um, we're measuring and then we're making it transparent because if you can communicate with the people in the organization, whether that's a company, whether that's a law firm, then people are starting to feel that there's more fairness in the process. Um, what I can tell you on the numbers is um, one of the organizations that we've enjoyed a good early relationship with, and we want to keep drilling down. I think you may talk to them at some point in the future, and that's Parker Analytics. And uh, Evan Parker is a data scientist of the first order, um, and he has uh, a lot of 
um, analyses, a lot of numbers. And so what some of those numbers say is, well, um, uh, diversity has been a uh, nice to have again. It's been a moral imperative, but he shows the studies of, of where it's a business imperative by saying uh, diverse teams um, are, are $250,000 to $300,000 per partner more profitable. So that drives. Another tool that says, um, how do we measure the equitable assignment of work, right? Because if we get to mid-level or the partner level, where then you're judging and saying, okay, um, how many people do we have? Well, it's way too late for that. Did we make sure that um, some of these uh, asymmetric um, uh, uh, results that we don't want to happen are not happening up front? And so what I can tell you is uh, we did, uh, I wrote a paper, um, it was called Democratizing Diversity, and it appeared in the uh, American Lawyer, I think, in May. It was a shorter version of a long paper with lots of data and that sort of thing. And basically what I did was this. In 1997, the Wall Street Journal wrote, uh, wrote an article on our firm, Sherman and Sterling at that time, um, featuring me, one other African-American associate, and then John from the diversity and management committee level. They were asking a very simple question. And the simple question was, why do big law firms have such a challenge attracting and retaining talented African-American associates. Now, some of my colleagues might joke with you and say, who called Brian talented? But, you know, besides that, besides the <laughs> right. point, right? Um, we looked across the, the street at that point, and there were 4.9% African-Americans. When we did the bring down, when I started the, the company, so I picked a woman um, uh, in our office, um, because we're talking diversity and inclusion, I picked an African-American man. I give you one guess as to what 22 years later that, that African-American number was, 5%. So it had grown from 4.9 to five. And so that's the measurement that we're seeing and we're not seeing a lot of growth and further impacted by when we hit market difficulties. And one of the points that we make is if you look at the 2008 uh, real estate correction, um, cuts across the board at a lot of the junior levels. And the profession had really just done a good job of getting diversity going. So when you took the meat cleaver uh, and did your cuts, it disproportionately impacted women and minorities. It took, and this is uh, some of Evan's analysis as well, it took us an entire decade to, make the, to get back to the pre-2008, 2009 number. So just last year, why am I saying all this? In addition to our data, again, we're going to be 30%. Um, we, we hope that the firms will see that. They'll start uh, giving us, uh, you know, they'll, they'll start taking more and more folks from us so that, that those numbers will go, those numbers will go up. Um, but if you look at COVID and, and, and if people repeat the mistakes of 2008, well, what are we talking about? Well, from that data point, we could be saying that we're sitting here in 2030 before diversity levels come back to 2000, uh, 2019 levels, which are already saying are too low. So I think we've got to be talking about uh, brass tacks, double digit numbers. So if African-Americans are at five, we're gotta be at 10. We gotta have Latinx in the high single digits, right? That's been, that's been a really challenging demographic in terms of them being able to get opportunities in the right numbers. Uh, LGBTQ has grown over that time, but the data's masked a little bit because we say um, people nowadays are feeling more comfortable um, being their authentic selves. That is absolutely the way that it should be. So we don't know was there growth in those numbers, or was it finally people got a chance to be them, the, them true, their true selves? And so when we look at these diversity scorecards and what Paulette Brown, um, former president of the ABA, uh, former president of the NBA, over at uh, uh, over at Lock Lord said, we have firms that are scoring high on the diversity scorecards, and they don't have one black partner impossible right. to say that we're measuring the right things if you're getting a good grade on diversity and you don't have one black partner. So those are some of the things that we're trying to sharpen up. And the last thing I'll say is women of all colors shrinking that pay gap. It's just appalling that women are coming in as 50% of these injuring classes, but nowhere near that in leadership roles at the firm, in partnership roles at the firm, 
and then in uh, pay. There's still a pay gap for doing the same and many times better work. There's, there's just no reason for it. Um, this is maybe extending the, some of the points you, you made earlier, Brian, but uh, you did mention an article you wrote for the American lawyer titled uh, what the death of George Floyd should teach the legal industry. Yeah. Um, can, can you summarize that, that article and some of the, the sure. points, points you made in that article and um, maybe talk about what kind of change you think needs to, Mm -hmm. uh, needs to be enacted to drive some of the permanent change that we all want to see in the industry. Yeah, no, it's uh, thank you for the opportunity to, to, to talk about that. And if people look on our website, they can see both that article and coming out of our website, we listed about five, a framework for diversity solutions. So we, we certainly welcome people to go there and that's uh, um, legal-innovators.com, www, uh, obviously, but to, to, to answer your question, um, the first thing may surprise you, but the first thing is around mental health. So there was a line that I used. And so I gave, you know, a number of interviews and did some podcasts at, uh, right, right in the wake of uh, the, the article. And I said, uh, or, you know, wrote a line and I guess I said it out loud, your black colleagues and friends are not okay. We've got to step back and, and, and mental health goes across the profession, right? And so we, we've got to be able to check in and even if it's just to make sure that people could operate at full um, capacity. Now, what does that mean? Well, People are um, just, I think, human beings of, of high moral character, regardless of their color, were appalled by what they saw. For, for African-Americans and your colleagues and your friends, the point that I was making is it is equally appalling, but personally traumatizing, right? Um, and so what do we do with that? And people say, well, you know, Brian, you went to uh, Berkeley and you went to NYU, you're at these top firms. When I go outside, you may have heard this concept before. Um, it's a concept of driving while black. I've been pulled over because of a certain car that I, was, uh, that I was driving. So the point is that we experience some of the same realities that are going on in some of these incidents. Fortunately, I mean, you don't see lawyers and investment bankers and that sort of thing being too often shot by the police, but that's a reality that you carry over. So what I say in the tangible steps are, that you need to, uh, law firms have to have a culture where they ask, hey, are you okay? Is there support? Uh, first from an organizational level, what's the organizational help? And then making it available, by the way, for white, black, Asian, whatever, uh, whichever demographic, um, to be able to sit down and, and talk out these, uh, these, these issues because it's, it's tough and it's tough for everybody which leads into a couple of points that I would make from the article. Where, where do we go from here, I think is, is kind of how your question shaped up. And we've, this is not the, law, the, the legal industry's uh, problem alone. This is a societal thing. But um, when I joked a little bit, and it was only a little bit of joking because most of the people I know, regardless of what color they are, wrote these statements for, um, for their legal entry uh, to, to law schools that says, well, you know, I want to give a voice to the voiceless. I want to do good in the world. Right. We're smart. We wrote these statements. We should live up to them and model the way for other people. And modeling the way it says, we have never as a country dealt with our original sin. That's slavery. We don't have to uh, get upset or heated or whatever, but we've got to talk about it. We've got to have those uncomfortable conversations. We've got to create an environment of trust where people do feel comfortable. They do feel that they belong and they're allies on the other side, right? There are um, populating the executive committees, um, probably too high a percentage of white men. Okay, fine. A lot of those people want to understand and they are sometimes afraid to step forward out of fear of using the wrong language, offending someone. So I think part of the hard conversation has to be, look, we trust and we respect each other. If you say something that's wrong um, or, or that's not the right buzzword, we're not gonna prosecute you. Now we may teach, we may educate, we may lift you up. And John and I try to also model the way for that. John is a uh, older than I am, um, uh, Jewish guy who has sat on uh, the policy and the executive committee. Look, 
we don't always see the world eye to eye, but because we have that love, that respect, that affection for each other, we can have conversations where, uh, around these thorny issues. And I think that's possible too. Um, the leaders, law firms, corporations, clearly corporations do a little bit more because there's a CEO and, they, and a board and they can say, look, this is the stake in the ground and this is what we're going after. Law firms are partnerships. So even if you have a senior or managing partner or chairman, he, uh, that person has to build consensus around that position. Back to your point on metrics, Jack, I'm absolutely convinced that we have to say that person or that group of people has to say, this is no longer a nice to have. It is a business imperative and put a stake in the ground. You ask about metrics. Okay, just as one example, we're 5% African-American in three years, five years, we're going to be at 10, we're going to be at 12%, whatever the goal is. And then everything has to align around that uh, compensation. We have to reward people for, that are meeting the goal. Uh, we have to take away compensation for people that aren't meeting the goal. And when we say that, we have to mean it and we have to put teeth behind it because there may be some partner that has some uh, decent book of business that you're going to use a stick to help drive this business goal. And that partner may say, well, you know what? I'm going to go to firm X across the street. And the difficult thing of looking in the mirror is going to have to be, okay, I'm okay with that person leaving because they are not in keeping with our mission and values and they are subverting this goal that we are trying to get. I talked about transparency. You have to share that out regularly with the firm with no excuses. So if after the first year we should be at 7%, we're at 6.1. Okay. What do we need to do? How do we problem solve this? This can't just be a top down approach. It has to be a bottom up. So we're saying here is a business imperative and here are some solutions that affect uh, these diverse groups. We need to hear from them too. give them a voice in the solution because that again, fosters the goal of belonging. And, and, and I think if we are measuring things, if we're setting the metrics up front, it's been decided uh, that this is a priority for the business and everybody's buying into it. Well, you start to create a playing field that people feel is more fair and they feel that, you know what, this is the kind of place that I can uh, be at. The reverse is true as well. The millennials grew up largely in very diverse environments. So when you think about a talent dream, if these environments aren't more welcoming and don't really live up to that, those core values of diversity and inclusion, our supposition is that you're not only gonna lose diverse associates, you're gonna lose lots of associates who have that as their own core personal value. So those are some of the things uh, that came away from the article. And uh, something else you, you've, you've talked about, uh, Brian, and I, I, as part of uh, your company's focus, is this, this concept of bringing innovation to law through innovating and evolving the ways that you're evaluating candidates during and after law school. And that's, that's, you've talked a little bit about some of the change that needs to happen at the law firm level, at, at almost the institutional level, yeah. where we're, we're thinking about the pipeline of future talent. And as you pointed out, the, the millennials that are the, the next generation of, yeah. of lawyers thinking about the, the hiring process, the selection process uh, in a new way. Can you tell us a little bit about your, your thinking on that front? And, and how, again, how you think that might help drive some of the systemic change we need to see? Yeah, um, su su super good question. And, you know, the first thing uh, won't surprise you, and you're going to ask Evan the same question if you guys have him on. We got to measure that pipeline, right? Um, and right. so um, that, as you say, it's a leading, you know, it's the, the canary in the coal mine. It's like, okay, hey, we're, uh, and, and when we think about pipeline and our innovation, we're saying, a lot of the big firms and then kind of by extension of some of the companies, but companies are a little bit different on this say, well, we're going to go to the T14 schools and, and, and we're going to pick off the certain percentage of those schools. Um, maybe some go to the top 25. Now look, uh, and we're grateful after uh, American lawyer wrote the piece in December about, uh, about our company. 
uh, a lot of law schools reached out to us and we were able to, to add to our core partners that started with us the first year, uh, Georgetown, uh, uh, George Washington University and Howard. Um, so we now have uh, nine of the top 25 schools, but we also have uh, top regional schools as well because uh, in those regional schools, you might deal with people that had to work their way through school um, who, who um, are in the top five, 10, 15% of their class but they're not getting looks because people say, well, by the law of large numbers, I'm not going to go out there. And so I think that's first, let's expand the data set of what we're looking at. And then let's change or enhance the criteria a little bit. So the way that it currently works now, you sign up, you get on an interview schedule on, for on-campus interviews. Uh, you get 15 or 20 minutes with the interviewer. They're going to give a, a you know, kind of a, go, a, a no-go or go. Then you come into the firm and you have four to six uh, interviews, people may be in the middle of deals and all that, you get an offer. Uh, offer for a summer internship, which these days, once you show up to that place, unless you punch a partner in the face, uh, and it's an important partner, <laughs> you're gonna get an offer. So look at the amount of diligence that was done, um, and we're now making a permanent hire uh, on, that, uh, on that person, and we're also, right now, looking at only the first year grades. Well, what about people that showed up and they, you know, obviously they had the candle power to get in, but they evolved and they learned the, the, the game of law school and how you, how you um, mature and go through. Well, those second and third year grades uh, and performances right now don't show up. So we want to look at the whole person. Third, statistics and, and looking at uh, I guess we have a way of, of, of looking at metrics that will, hate to say uh, AI, because everybody is, it's an overused buzzword, but we look at 15 to 24 factors that we think can be more predictive of who's going to be a good lawyer. And so if you can take that data because it's there, then it starts to even up, right? Because if you're, say, uh, in the way that you're doing it right now, you're overweight on the top 14 schools, when we've compared this data, it's uh, more distributed from across the board. And you have um, somebody that was a varsity uh, athlete, somebody that's on scholarship at, uh, at their law school that maybe would be ranked a little bit lower. They can become a good lawyer. Uh, fourth, we try to get to know the people for six, to, uh, six months to a year, right? So we have a better sense of them. We keep our number of schools that we go to small so that we can get on the phone if we need to and really dig down on a candidate with the associate dean of placement. And then lastly, we give them uh, a live test of, uh, of, of a project that you would have to think through and then clearly write uh, if you were a first or second year lawyer. We're able to take that and say, it's not a cutoff like, oh, okay, well, if you didn't do great, you're out. But does it show the shape of thinking? Does it show logic? Does it show creativity? Does it show that you can evolve? Because we're, we're not saying it's the typical law firm environment where it's sink or swim. We're saying that we have these support mechanisms, which are the, uh, the training and the, and the mentoring. But if you put all four or five of those steps together, now you have a really rigorous evaluation process. And I think not only are you looking at your pipeline and, and your question was to, uh, related to diversity and inclusion, mm -hmm. so it should be a more diverse pipeline. It'll be a high quality pipeline. And then just to go back to the, to the math problem that I was saying before, the $100 million investment in making the yeah. return uh, with half as many people, you should have a stickier class that's gonna, that's gonna be around. So now on that 100 million, you've got 80 associates to make your money back or make a profit on rather than the 50. So those are some of the ways that we innovate and in what we do in particular uh, in the recruiting process. Shifting gears uh, in entirely, Brian, would love to hear your perspective on some of the impacts you've seen COVID-19 have on, on your business and your clients as well. What are some of the major changes that you've seen over the last four months? Yeah. Like how, how, how much time do you get, Jack? Are, are we, are we, we get a couple hours. We're going to go to beers after this. Um, I, I, I wish we could. That would be so great. <laughs> yeah. No, I'm, I'm obviously being, you know, you, you, you laugh to keep from crying. Right. Um, 
right. look, this is a worldwide pandemic and, and I, I really can't think of many businesses that it hasn't impacted one way or the other. I mean, now you've got some businesses that uh, have done extremely well, Zoom, which we're yep. on, Netflix, um, some of the other streaming services, Amazon for sure. Um, but other businesses, law firms, corporations, um, rushing to say, okay, look, we got, and, and that's smart business, we've got to right-size our costs. We don't know how long this will go. So how deep do we cut? What do we, do we furlough people? That, just to tie it back to the, the, to the pre- previous point uh, a little bit, and if we're not careful, we're going to have some unintended consequences as we right-size our infrastructures, meaning that we may go uh, undercut our, uh, some of our diversity and inclusion goals. So I think what happened, um, and if you look at a stock chart, what, what, what we saw was uh, the shock and awe, right? So everybody's portfolios dipped 20 to 30%. People were freaking out like, oh my God, what do I do? Corporations were, look, we've got guidance out there. How do we right size our expense structure? What can we mm-hmm. do on the revenue side? Law firms were, were saying, how do we plan? When do we have associates start? What are we doing about recruiting? Um, can we move people around from one area of the business that maybe is not busy to another area of the business? So I think that the, the, the effects were far and wide. And, and, and I'll give you, maybe by the end of February, we had three people or three you know, entities that had absolutely committed and a couple others that were far down the sales pipeline slowly over a week and a half uh, point as this became more real, each one of them had to say, um, still interested, but we've got to put you on hold, right? Um, Because they had to figure out their own businesses. So Mm -hmm. for us as a small startup, and and you guys know this from, you know, from, from when you started, right? Cash is king, you're burning cash. So can you survive? Can you, can you uh, get through the pandemic? at least to the point where we are now, where the shock and awe is uh, worn off. The market is sort of prices back in. This is business as, as, as usual. Most markets and stocks are back up. We can start planning. There's still some uncertainty out there, right? Like we've had this opening, uh, the numbers are going back up. So does that now mean uh, when we thought we were gonna be back in the office by July or August, that it's at the end of the year, or maybe it's the beginning of next year. And so for us, we say, how do you operate in this new reality? Uh, Our model is still a one to two year apprenticeship, but we rolled out our flex services this this morning um, so that people can say, look, if if you have an area that's that's flexing and you want a big law trained ready associate, if you have uh, diverse needs, that's fine too. But you know, we have have great people, Mm -hmm. both diverse and non, what can jump in and help you for as little as three, six months. And we hope that that will start a partnership that will then turn into our core model. I think it's people really having to, to assess, get calm, and then just really put a business plan uh, in place and be comfortable being uncomfortable, right? We just don't know some of these answers, but what we've proved is through Zoom, through through. Uh, other mechanisms and phone calls, we can be resilient. Uh, and, and I think that that's, that, that's where we are. There's, I, I guess last, I may, I may say that there's a, probably a need, maybe more than we are on the mental health services side and checking mm-hmm. in with people that are feeling isolated, that are feeling um, I'm used to that social contact that are not getting it um, and figuring out how, how we do that across the board. Brian, this is building on the one of the last points you made, but I you, you've got a background in in law and in business, which is a, a, not super common, um, and something we've explored a lot on on this show and talk a lot about at, at Clio in general is just the power of bringing a bit more of a business mindset to operating and running a law firm. And I, I think especially in the midst of a pandemic like this, thinking about the, the growth opportunity and, and the opportunity to really innovate and differentiate yourself uh, at a business level is a significant one. Can you speak a little bit about how um, you think lawyers can and maybe should think about themselves more as a business and some of the, the impacts that can, that can help drive for, for the average law firm? 
Yeah, no, that's a, I, I think a really good question. So um, you first have to set yourself up like, like a business, right? And to say, um, what are the measurement periods? I think when an, an American lawyer does a lot of great things, right? I think when they came out with um, the M-Law 200, whenever that was, 10, 15, well, it's probably 15 years or more ago, it shifted uh, the rankings and the rankings are uh, driven in part by profits per partner, right? So what do you focus on? Well, you focus on profits per partner that year. <laughs> Most right. companies are thinking in terms of strategic plans in three to five years, right? And that's why you see companies will say, look, you know, we can, uh, we can be a little bit more flexible. We can take a chance on some innovation. But there's some firms that certainly are at the, I don't want to say at the cutting edge, but some firms that are saying, look, we have to do it from, um, I'm hearing from my customer, let's just say in the most basic example, uh, in that first year that I'm charging five to $600 an hour for to try to make up for that huge carrying cost that I talked about at the beginning. Well, the clients, the GCs are saying, no, we're not going to pay uh, premium rates to train people on our matters. And so we've seen the realization rates drop to 400 on, on average. So the first thing is to, to deal in reality and then make a business plan that works to that reality. So if you are not proactive and kind of give that value and bring your costs into line, well, guess what? Either you're gonna lose that work or the client is gonna say, here's the price, uh, take it or leave it and you're gonna be out over your right. skis. So I think a lot of people, whether they use our model or not, are saying, okay, the salary war's probably gotten out of hand. Um, do I have more real estate, premium real estate than I need? Can I right size that? So I think those are some of the, the, the first things. The law firms, as we look at data and as we reach out to our customers, probably won't surprise you, right? You want to reach out to people that are in a more innovative mindset. And so some of these companies that have added a position, or law firms, excuse me, that have added a position that you still don't see in every law firm and it was uncommon, you know, as little as five years ago. And that's a chief innovation officer, right? So a former Bain, McKinsey, some, some consulting type that's concerned with the business of efficiency, the, the, the business of the next marginal dollar of profit, more long-term thinking and maybe adjusting the mindset of how people are thinking, strategic officers, and really, Firms have had executive directors and CEOs for a long time, but they took, they were kind of at the behest of the, of the managing partner. And now they're saying, look, when I'm my true business partner, and as we articulate our goals, and uh, yes, we want to work within the M-Law 200 because we want to be ranked as high as possible. But to the extent that that produces some results that we don't want, can we change the measuring period so that maybe I'm, I, maybe it makes sense, say in this year coming out of uh, George Floyd, to really double down and, and invest in a series where you talked about systemic change, Jack. I think that's the right word. So if I wanted to really double down and invest there or open a new office this year, but that was going to drive down my profits per partner by, let's call it five, but let's call it 10%, right? And so I look at that on a pro forma basis and I look year over year and say, well, I was at 40 last year. This is going to drop me to number 52. Is that okay? Because I'm going to show you how that investment, maybe in year two, but probably more likely in year three, four, five, right. is really going to pay off. And we're jumping from 40 to 30 or 20 or whatever it is. It's a math problem. And this is the way that business folks look at it. I would just look at those two income streams, right? Discount them back to present and say, here's my myopic focus of investing in only a year and I'll tick and I'll have some marginal growth. I've really invested in uh, income stream two. Um, and so my profits are down in year one, maybe in half of year two, but three, four, and five are going to return such an outsized investment when I do a present value analysis every time uh, cash flow stream number two, where I've made this strategic investment, is going to be far greater. If the partnership can get their hands around that and people say, all right, our compensation is driven in that way, our rankings are driven that way, um, and we're looking for the future as, as opposed to just one year at a time, I think doing some of those strategic things um, get people you know, further and further. And then 
Obviously, you can enhance, you can do some of the things that we're doing in the alternative legal service provider space. There's great technology, you guys, there's other people um, out there that have these great tech tools that not everybody's fully utilizing yet, but mm -hmm. I also understand it's a, mind, uh, a mindset. And so one of the things that I bring um, to, to the work of change, any innovation, is being realistic about my customer. So if I'm servicing a general counsel at one of these big companies, and I know that they are they're in the business of change. I can look at their R&D and see how much they're spending and, and, and investing for the future. I'll look at a law firm and say, well, you know what? They, they want to be innovative. They want to start changing. But realize you don't take a battleship and turn it 180 overnight. We've got to measure out that change. But as long as we're being clear about what the metrics are, what the periods of those measurements are, and then again, reporting out. I mean, it sounds simple, right? But you're, you are... Um, thinking, acting, feeling both inside and out um, like a business. And, and again, um, many law firms are, are ahead on this curve. Our role is to try to see, not go in and say you're broken, but here's some opportunities for value enhancement. Where can we be a partner and help you, uh, and help you expand? I think you made a really important point around also being really clear about the what your priorities are and what what costs you're willing to bear to make some of these long-term impacts. And and to a point you made earlier about when you're writing your law firm you admission letter, it probably wasn't centered on maximizing profits per partner, right? That's and right. somehow yeah, that's yeah. that's where the profession has gravitated, right. um, at least in some firms and if we want to drive the kind of enduring change we want to see in the industry, it really feels like we need to start thinking in a multi-year time frame, and uh, and be willing to take some short-term sacrifices to uh, to to get there. And, and and maybe to tie this all together to totally to wrap this you. up, Brian. <laughs> um, we've talked about a few big themes here over the course of our conversation. Maybe tying everything together in a holistic way. What does the future of the profession? look like to you if we if we drive the kind of change that we uh, we've talked about over the course of this episode yeah um what does it look like um i think that you bring more alignment um between uh the companies and their uh general counsel uh departments as the as you know maybe the end customer uh though we're marketing to them and and the law firms um mm -hmm. uh the law firms will come in and say look Maybe it's more project-based pricing, or maybe we're bringing, uh, bringing the pricing of, of the entry-level folks down. Um, but we're going to bring, we're going to come in into more, uh, more alignment. And I think just having uh, interests aligned, that, that produces uh, good results, right? And so where do you make your money? How do you get more efficient? So we, we, we just covered that. I think what you're going to see is there are going to be, and, and this always seems to be the way that it is, they're going to be some firms. I don't know if that's 25%. I don't know if it's, if it's 35% or, or 15. I, I, I tend to think it's maybe more 20 or, or 25 that are going to say, hey, look, um, we can learn from other industries. So we're going to bring in the Bain and McKinsey types. We're going to, um, in terms of recruiting, um, we've got uh, PWCs in the Accenture of the world that has broken this recruiting uh, process down even further than we have, right? And say, look, that's fine. We're going to take the, the best demonstrated practices you talked about. Um, what's, the, what's the time horizon? I think you will see uh, law firms um, still maintaining the best elements of their partnerships, but thinking like businesses more because that's how you're going to bring that alignment. That's how you get the multi-year view that you're talking. And then people make the, because, you know, we're in this, uh, most of us are in this for profit and there's nothing wrong with that. But to, you know, almost surprisingly, you got to be more efficient to drive more profit. Um, right. The the enduring question, and, and you know, obviously this is, this, this is on all of our minds kind of coming out of the, um, the George Floyd um, murder, which is, is this another in the lineage of events that, you know, recent times started happening in 2014 with Mike Brown, Ferguson, cities on fire, everybody's up in arms. Same thing, although I think we had a little bit more peaceful process this time. We still need to, 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 to stop the looting. But I think people have said, for the moment, we're putting down a, 
uh, a line in the sand, if you will. Um, so what I don't know is, have we reached a, water, a watershed moment where the profession is, is fully uh, aligned uh, and has as one of its core values, equality, and we're really gonna uh, democratize the law or is this a you know kind of a flash in the pan? I, I hope that it is uh, that it is more than that. And then um, you know, selfishly, I won't give a, a commercial for us, but I'll say for all um, um, providers, tech services, both in the alternative legal service provider space. If we look back at ten, uh, say ten years ago, uh, law firms were still getting you know sort of fat and happy off of doing diligence and um, you know reams of documents. Well, what happened? We got technology that made doing the due diligence a lot more efficient. Um, we offshored some of the services part of it. So I see the profession continuing to get more efficient by incorporating not just the best practices that we talked about, but in this, because this is what businesses do, right? The, at least the best ones. Not technology for technology's sake, but technology where it can really make you more efficient and and to build in whatever concept you want to be, machine learning, um, uh, artificial intelligence, around some of the human uh, uh, processes. Because I do think we can get better at both predicting who will be a good lawyer, and that has to do with the pipeline, but also the longevity. And I think that if we look at it like that, there's a role here uh, for this um, alternative legal service provider universe to continue to expand. Now, we're not going to be law firms and displaced people, but can we all be aligned where we're, where we're helping with efficiency uh, on the corporate side and on the law firm side? I absolutely think we will see uh, those things uh, as, as, I don't know, maybe a decade is the, is the right uh, frame of, uh, of, of management. You know, it's a good, it's a good profession. Um, we've got some things to fix, so it's not, oh, let's throw out the baby with the bathwater and start all over, but we've got some fine tuning to do. Thanks for joining us on Daily Matters, a podcast from Clio. Rate and review wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe so that you never miss an episode. Daily Matters is produced by Andrew Booth, Sam Rosenthal, and Derek Bolin, and hosted by yours truly, Jack Newton. Thanks also to Clio, the world's leading cloud-based legal technology provider for supporting this podcast.